Well, I would invite you to uh, join me this morning in grabbing a copy of your scriptures and opening to the second chapter of Matthew, which if you're using the Bible in the back of the seat in front of you is located on page 808. Well, fleeing to safety, fleeing to safety. In the first installment of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, we see Frodo and his uh, hobbit friends leaving the Shire and hounded by the Nazgul, the Black Riders. And while there are a host of dramatic escapes before they reach the temporary safety of Rivendell, I personally find the most dramatic escape to take place at the Prancing Pony, uh, an inn where Frodo and his friends are staying for the night uh, with the forces of evil hot on their trail. In the film version, there is a scene showing the Nazgul secretly entering the bedroom of the hobbits and uh, lifting up their long swords and plunging them into the would-be sleeping bodies of the hobbits. But come to find out, uh, the hobbits had used that age-old trick of pillows and blankets uh, to simulate the appearance of their bodies being in bed while they were actually safely hidden in another room with Aragorn. It's a compelling scene uh, with the Nazgul screeching in rage when they realized that they had been duped. Well, this morning, uh, we'll be concluding our four-week study in the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel, uh, a series we've simply titled The Birth of Jesus Christ, the origin story of the Messiah, as it were, God's King. And we've considered the king's line, the king's birth, the king's reception, and today we're going to conclude by looking at the king's flight, Jesus's narrow escape from the clutches of a madman, and then his subsequent return to the land of Israel. Well, grab your scriptures, follow along as I read the text at hand, starting in verse 13, And continuing through the end of chapter 2. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's word for us this morning. And before we dive into the text in detail, I just wanted to make three quick observations at the head to get us started. Uh, number one, this passage makes it abundantly clear that God was divinely involved in protecting and preserving the life of His Son. Second, there is real human pain and sorrow and suffering 
in this passage. Third, Matthew is insistent that Jesus is the promised and prophesied deliverer. This passage is neatly divided into three sections, each ending with Matthew stating that the events of Jesus' life have fulfilled the words of an Old Testament prophet. Now, most of us roll out of bed thinking about prophecy being fulfilled in the following way, right? An Old Testament prophet uh, makes a prediction about a future yet-to-happen event, and then at some point in the future, that event happens in the manner that was prescribed. We could call this a direct prediction, and the birth of Jesus Christ gives us a traditional understanding of this Micah in Micah 5.2 predicted Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Messiah King. And there was a built-in expectation in the years to follow that the Messiah would be born in the city of David. And God orchestrated events to cause his son to be born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of that promise. Uh, But in this passage before us today we see another form of prophetic fulfillment. And we've talked about this a little bit the last couple of weeks. Prophetic fulfillment that is not necessarily a direct prediction coming to fruition, but rather the completion of a predictive pattern seen earlier in Scripture. So Matthew here is going to see types and patterns from the Old Testament as being completed by the events of Jesus' early life. In other words, the Events unfolded this morning in Jesus' young life are fulfilling what was foreshadowed by specific Old Testament events. We call this typology, which we could simply define as the recognition and study of correspondence between Old Testament and New Testament events, institutions, and people within the framework of the Bible story. And and here's the thing, as, as we study the Scriptures, as we spend time in the Scriptures it becomes readily apparent that our good God has orchestrated his saving purposes in such a way that it's unified, governed by his wise, all-powerful design. And, And as we move across the pages of his word, we regularly notice God working in particular ways, observing similarities in the types of things that God does when he saves his people. Seeing patterns and types in the story of the Bible is a God-intended and God-inspired design. It's how he's chosen to reveal himself to humanity, and properly recognizing these patterns and types is to read the Bible on God's terms. Now, Matthew has already done this for us in chapter 1, and he's going to continue to do it for us this morning and throughout his gospel. And we're together going to do a bit more of this work today. So today's sermon will divide along three incidents, another exit, another exile, and another exodus, each culminating in typological fulfillments of the nature I just described. Let's start with another exit, another exit. So we pick up the narrative surrounding Jesus' birth just after the visit of the wise men, where Matthew has told us they were warned in a dream not to report back to Herod on their way home. Herod had attempted to use the wise men to lead him to the birthplace of the newborn king under the false pretense of desiring to worship him. And almost instantly after the departure of the wise men, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and commands him to take his wife, Mary and baby Jesus to Egypt to evade the coming wrath of Herod. And the text seems to indicate this quick, sudden action with Joseph taking his wife and child in the middle of the night and fleeing as the angel had told him to do. Now, if we consider this a little bit, this would not have been an easy journey. Traveling by foot, maybe with the aid of a donkey or some other four-legged creature, and a baby, we could estimate, between the ages of 
six and 20 months in age. And the border of Egypt was approximately 75 miles from Bethlehem, with another 100 miles likely traveled to a place of safety in Egypt, the city of Alexandria. Historians tell us that many Jews had settled in the city of Alexandria over time, making it a possible destination for Joseph and his family. And if this is so, this is roughly the equivalent of traveling from Greenville to Atlanta, a long distance, a journey that no one likes to make, even if you have a car, but this was done by foot. It also seems reasonable to suggest that Joseph might have used, he might have used the valuable gifts of the wise men to pay for the journey and the accommodations in Egypt for this unspecified length of stay. If you pause for a moment and think about it, God could have protected his son in so many other ways. He could have blinded Herod's soldiers. He's done that before. He could have wiped them out with fire from heaven. He could have struck Herod dead on the spot. And he could have hidden the family in Bethlehem in some supernatural way. But God used the ordinary and long-established pattern of Israelites exiting the land and fleeing to temporary safety in Egypt to preserve the life of his son. Consider, Abraham and Sarah went to Egypt when there was famine in the land. Joseph relocated his father, brothers, and their families to Egypt during a global famine, setting the stage for the future exodus of Moses. And even Jeroboam fled to Egypt to hide from Solomon after God had promised him the ten northern tribes due to Solomon's rebellion. And each of these cases, with particular emphasis on the exit of the fledgling nation of Israel during the time of Joseph, God would protect his people for a time in Egypt, only to lead them out of this exile and into the promised land. Now, the description of Joseph and Mary's flight to Egypt ends with a look to their return from exile, how their return to Israel after Herod's death would fulfill the words of the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, we're going to deal with this prophetic fulfillment a bit later, but for the moment, it's simply enough to note the following. Jesus' exit from the land of Israel and into safety in Egypt follows a biblical pattern of God's people fleeing danger by going into exile in Egypt, which leads us to the second movement in our story, another exile, another exile. So now with the promised Messiah safely delivered from the clutches of of Herod, the scene shifts back to Bethlehem, where we witness uh, the unfolding of pure and unmitigated evil. Herod, in his rage, realizing the, the wise men got out of Dodge without reporting back to him as he had asked them to, furiously orders the execution of all the male children in Bethlehem and in the surrounding area who are two years old or younger. And according to text, we we read that Herod had ascertained, he'd learned from the wise men, an approximate age of this promised king of the Jews, probably capping it at two years to account for any discrepancies that might have existed in their timeline. It's interesting, as we think about this, that Herod, this ruthless act that he commits, really fits with what history tells us of a man who, in his latter years, grew increasingly suspicious, increasingly villainous, having murdered multiple sons, murdered a favorite wife, 
murdered large groups of people in an effort to protect his beloved throne. And tragically, these precious children in Bethlehem were caught in the crosshairs of his jealous lust for power. Now, at the time of Herod, Bethlehem had an estimated population of around 1,000 people. So, estimate would be that probably between 10 and 20 infants and toddlers were slaughtered in, in Herod's rage. And I don't know about all of you, I know for me, as, as I read the Christmas story with my family, this is often a part of the story that all move quickly past. It doesn't fit with all those warm, happy Christmas feelings. But we need to honor God's Word and, and stop for a moment and consider this on a human level. Right? These were real babies put to the sword. Real babies. Real parents had to witness their sweet boys being ripped from their arms. Real children had to listen to the dying cries of their brothers. And real pain, real heartache, real agony descended on the homes of these real people. So all the hope, all the joy, all the promise, all the excitement of these young lives wiped away. Gone. And while it's hard to overlook how the murder of these boys was reminiscent of Pharaoh's attempts to murder the young boys during the days of Moses, Matthew tells us that, that this horrific event fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now this quote that Matthew references is taken directly from Jeremiah 31.15, about 600 years earlier, where Jeremiah is describing Rachel as a picture of all Jewish mothers weeping and mourning as her sons are being taken into exile in Babylon. So, so this is the Babylonian conquest that Jeremiah is speaking of, where, where the remaining nation of Israel is being punished for its rebellion against God's covenant. And, and during that conquest, as the land was being ravaged, with Jerusalem and its temple ultimately destroyed, the best of the land's young men were, were rounded up in the city of Ramah before being deported on to Babylon. Jeremiah is describing these agonizing cries of mothers who would never see their sons again. And again, this is real heartache, this is real pain experienced by real people at a real point in history. And Matthew tells us that the weeping of Israel's mothers during the time of, of the Babylonian exile, again, approximately 600 years earlier, was a predictive pattern that was fulfilled in the sorrowful tears of Bethlehem's mothers as they wept over their little boys, sadistically murdered by Herod, even, even as Jesus had escaped to exile in Egypt. But I think if we consider this more and think about this on a deeper level, Herod's assault on the baby boys of Bethlehem was really motivated by a satanic desire to oppose God and stomp out his son and stomp out his king. All right, we saw this same demonic strategy back at the birth of Moses where the Herod-like Pharaoh enacted a program of infanticide. Right? Every boy born was to be drowned in the Nile River. But God sovereignly protected Moses 
And his national son, at that time, from the satanic fury of Pharaoh, even in this account, as he protects his son Jesus from the satanic fury of of Herod. And both of those instances fit the pattern put forth in Revelation 12, where Satan, the great dragon, is standing ready, waiting to devour the son of the woman. Yet the son is caught up to God and protected. Since the beginning, since Satan's rebellion in ages past, he has always been about destroying the seed who was promised to crush his head. But God has always been about protecting his son. And I also think it's important to note that there is a unique kind of suffering and sorrow that's present in this world that's a direct result of Satan's hatred of God, his son, his people. If we go all the way back to the garden, Satan has been raging against God. And throughout history, Satan often works through tyrants and nations with the express purpose of trying to destroy God's anointed. And the list of murderous men and nations is comprehensive if we go through Scripture. Cain, Egypt and Pharaoh, the Philistines and Goliath, the kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon, Haman, Herod, to the Pharisees, Pilate, the empire of Rome, all were aligned with Satan and and all committed or sought to commit terrible atrocities against those aligned with God. And if we were to go forward about 30 years, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God's Son, was supposed to be Satan's crowning achievement. Now, we live in a world inhabited by a real enemy, Satan, who hates God's Son and hates God's people. And if you are united to God's Son, Jesus Christ, by faith, guess what? He hates you too. Herod's cruel and horrific attempt to kill God's Son resulted in unspeakable heartache for those living in Bethlehem. And Satan is still raging, raging throughout the world today. And his rage often results in real pain and real agony for followers of Jesus Christ. We might be somewhat insulated from this reality in Greenville, but it doesn't take much poking around the globe to find this type of Satan's cruelty on full display. Followers of Jesus taking a stand for what's biblically true and losing their jobs. Churches being burned. Pastors being imprisoned. Christians being beaten up, murdered. And on a bit of a side note, but I couldn't really help making this connection, like our own country has gotten really adept at the killing babies routine. And yet... But of all that, the height of Satan's tyranny is to oppress people with himself in the exile of sin and darkness. He pulled Adam and Eve into that rebellion, that sin and darkness, and every human being now is born into that same exile, the exile of sin. And this exile is far worse than slavery in Egypt. It's far worse than deportation in Babylon. It's an exile that will result in never-ending punishment and conscious agony forever with Satan in hell. But there is hope. There is so much hope. If we go back to Jeremiah... Consider the words of the prophet in context, which we always need to do. I'm going to read Jeremiah 31, 15, the quote that Matthew picks up, and then the next two verses that come after. 
Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Jeremiah follows up his description of the weeping mother's rightful sorrow with words of hope. There's going to be a reason to stop crying. Your weeping will come to an end. Your tears will cease. Your children will one day return from exile and they will come home. And though these mothers probably never saw their children again, within a short span of time, God orchestrated a partial fulfillment of this promise. Right? Under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra and others, some of these exiled Israelites came home from exile and returned to their homeland. But there's an even greater hope to be found in Jeremiah's prophecy. The coming deliverance of, of a remnant from exile in Babylon, and even the glorious past deliverance of the Israelite nation from slavery and oppression in Egypt, those are nothing compared to the deliverance from Satan's tyranny and the exile of sin that each and every person needs. If we were to go, again, back to Jeremiah 31 and keep reading, we see the Lord's heart yearning to show mercy to his sinful people. And then, in just a few verses, we come to famous passage, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Listen. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I, they, I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So do you see here, the, the quote from Jeremiah that is picked up by Matthew is set within the context of restoration from the greatest exile of all, the exile brought about by the curse of sin the return from exile that was foremost in Jeremiah's mind was God bringing all his chosen people back from captivity to Satan through the forgiveness of sin, the new covenants. See, seeing typological patterns in Scripture was not this cavalier invention of New Testament authors. No, it was already being developed in the text of the Old Testament itself. Matthew is really seeking to remind his largely Jewish audience and us these patterns of promise that are being fulfilled by the events of Jesus' early life. The new covenant is about to be inaugurated by this child who has just gone into exile in Egypt to be protected from Satan's agent, Herod. Matthew's already told us his name is Jesus and he will save his people will save his people from their sin. And it is the hope of this coming exodus brought about by this son that can truly overwhelm all of sin's sorrow with joy. So, now that we've gotten a, a glimpse of this glorious return from exile, let's move to the final section of our passage where we witness another and a greater exodus. 
back in our text, back in Matthew, verses 19 through 23, narrate the return of Joseph and Mary and Jesus from Egypt to the land of Israel. And has been the case each step of the way, uh, Joseph is visited by the angel of the Lord, announcing to him that those posing a threat to Jesus have died, and it's now safe to go back to the land of Israel. Along the way, Joseph learns that Herod's son Archelaus is reigning in the region of Judea, where Bethlehem was located. And apparently, Archelaus was a chip off the old block, embodying many of the same ruthless tendencies of his daddy. So fear grips Joseph's heart at this news. We can understand that. And he's warned in another dream not to return to Bethlehem, but, to to, but, but told to settle in the north. Uh, in the region of Galilee, outside Archelaus's jurisdiction. And we're told they settle in the city of Nazareth, which the Gospel of Luke tells us was the home of Joseph and Mary. And this landing place is both a natural and an unnatural place to land, as we'll see in a moment. Well, the description of Jesus' return from Egypt fulfills the words of the prophet Hosea that we read earlier. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And, and as we consider these words, it might seem like your traditional direct prediction formula. Right? Jesus is God's son. He'd been in exile in Egypt. And now God is calling his son out of Egypt back to the land. But if we turn back to Hosea, where these words are quoted from, we find a very different context. Listen as I read Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. It's Hosea speaking on behalf of God. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. But Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go forth after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars... His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So this text in Hosea has the nation of Israel, obviously, in full view. The, the son who was loved by God and called out of Egypt was the Jewish nation. And throughout the Old Testament, we, we often see the language of son being used to describe the nation of Israel, God's corporate son. Hosea is clearly speaking about the time that God delivered his son Israel from slavery and exile in Egypt. This is Moses and the Exodus, where God used plagues and Passover and the parting of the Red Sea to lead his people out of bondage toward the land of promise, the land promised to Abraham. 
And we know that Hosea is speaking about the nation of Israel for what he describes in verses 2 through 7 is really a synopsis of Israel's history, right? In light of God's constant love, constant provision, constant kindness, constant deliverance, in spite of his dwelling with them in tabernacle and in temple, they rejected his covenant. They turned to idols. They would not repent. And as a result of their rebellion, Hosea proclaims they will endure another exile as punishment for their sin. Assyria will be their king because they refused to return to God. And we know from history that Assyria did, in fact, conquer the ten northern tribes, followed shortly afterwards by Babylon, who conquered the southern tribes and took many Israelites captive back to Babylon, an event already alluded to by Matthew. But did you notice how the passage in Hosea comes to a close? The heart of God moved to compassion, beating with warmth and tenderness for his exiled people. Uh, The text says, God will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Oh, another exodus, another exodus was coming. And the story of redemption is this, that our glorious and good heavenly father is always calling his son home after exile. His heart is forever filled with compassion, with warmth, with tenderness for his own. We know back in Genesis, the first man, Adam, was created to live in fellowship with God in the paradise of Eden. But he was expelled from the garden because of his sin. And as we go through the story of Scripture, we see God sovereignly working to bring his people back home to himself from the exile brought about by sin. God protected Noah from the waters of the flood, calling Noah to resume Adam's work of being fruitful and filling the earth. God then called Abraham, called him out into covenant relationship with himself, promising to make him into a great people, to to dwell with that people in a special land, and to bless all of the nations through his offspring. And then we have the Exodus deliverance, the climax of God's saving work to the saints of the old covenant. Through Moses, God called the people out of Egypt, out of this bondage and oppression and exile into covenant with himself in the land of promise. It was supposed to be an Eden-like home, God dwelling with his people. But like the first son, Adam, this national son failed, and even David, David, who was sometimes called God's son as a representative of the nation as a whole and a type of God's eternal king, even David broke the covenant, as did all the kings to follow. So the nation was eventually conquered, sent to exile in Babylon, yet God was faithful to bring a remnant of his people back to their homeland in the city of Jerusalem. And yet, at the time of Jesus' birth, when Jesus was born, though the city walls had been rebuilt in Jerusalem, though the temple had been rebuilt, this greater exile of sin was still in full effect. Not everything was right as it should be. And it's here where we see the the wonder of this prophecy fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Because Matthew has taken the language of son that was once used to describe national Israel and placed it squarely on the shoulders of one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. As wonderfully noted by D.A. Carson, I quote here, Jesus is often presented in the New Testament as the fulfillment of Israel, that is, the true and perfect Israel who does not fail. If Israel is likened to a vine that produces disgusting fruit, Jesus is the true vine who brings forth good fruit. 
If Israel wandered in the wilderness 40 years and was frequently disobedient in the course of many trials and tribulations, Jesus was sorely tempted in the wilderness 40 days, but was perfectly obedient. Israel in the Old Testament is the Lord's son, but Jesus himself, a son of Israel, indeed a son of David, was supremely the son of God. And therefore, he reenacted or recapitulated something of the history of the son, the nation of Israel, whose very existence pointed forward to him. End quote. Friends, Jesus is the true and faithful Israelite who would come forth from exile in Egypt to lead an infinitely greater exodus than Moses did. An exodus out of the exile of sin and into the new creation. Matthew is proclaiming loud and clear that with this son, the exile is over. It's done. It's finished. David's promised heir, the faithful covenant-keeping partner, Jesus Christ, he has come. And Matthew is not playing games. He's not playing fast and loose with the Old Testament text. Rather, this prophecy in Hosea fits with the larger context of Old Testament revelation up to this point. Revelation that both explicitly and implicitly points toward the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the prophet like Moses, the Davidic king, faithful Israel, the Messiah. Now, just how would this Messiah lead his people home in a new exodus and into eternal life with God? Well, the third fulfilled prophecy in Matthew in this passage today gives us a hint. Remember that Joseph settled his family in Nazareth after Herod's death. Matthew states that Jesus coming to live in Nazareth fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, two quick notes on this prophetic fulfillment. For starters, it's the only prophecy in Matthew that is attributed to prophets, plural, as, a pro, as opposed to prophet, singular. Second, you can search the scriptures as you might. There isn't a single prophet, let alone multiple prophets, who predicted that the Messiah would call Nazareth his home. So we ask ourselves the question, has, has Matthew finally taken this idea of prophetic fulfillment a bit too far, claiming a prophecy for Jesus that was actually never made? Well, of course not. Of course not. And while this prophetic fulfillment has created a fair amount of scholarly debate, I believe the clarity is found in understanding how Nazareth was viewed in Jesus' day. From history and scripture, we see that Nazareth was a small and insignificant place. It was obscure, without importance. If we hit fast forward to Jesus' adult ministry, we see Philip, who has just met Jesus, speaking to his friend Nathaniel after meeting Jesus. He's excited and he says this, we have found him, we found him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. And many of us know the response of Nathaniel. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Later on in Jesus' ministry, we read how the people were divided over who Jesus really was. Some said he was the prophet. Others said that he was the Christ, the Messiah. But some said, is Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And even the Jewish religious leaders invited the people to search the scriptures and see no prophet comes from Galilee. So not only was there no prophetic expectation of the Messiah coming from Galilee or Nazareth, but Nazareth was viewed with disdain and reproach. Kind of like what, what some of us get here in Greenville, can anything good come out of California? And so Jesus grew up not with the expected 
kingly title, Jesus of Bethlehem, but rather with the derogatory title, Jesus of Nazareth. And this moniker stuck with him after his death and resurrection. If we read in the book of Acts, he's constantly referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. But this negative view of anything from Nazareth does fit with the pattern of various Old Testament passages predicting a coming Messiah who would be humble, despised, and rejected. You can see Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3, for clear examples of this. Both those passages I just mentioned, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, they ooze with with an attitude of mocking contempt, an attitude that most would have had toward those from Nazareth. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of being called a Nazarene in that his unique upbringing in Nazareth fulfilled the messianic expectation of a Messiah who would experience scorn and rejection. And these passages in the Old Testament have more than just a social rejection in view, more than just Jesus being an outcast. Both Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 are within the larger context of how the Messiah would die as a sacrifice for sin. The mocking words that were spoken toward David in Psalm 22 were unknowingly picked up by the Jewish religious leaders, and they spoke them toward Jesus as he hung on the cross. And if we were to continue on in Isaiah 53 after the first three verses, here's how Isaiah continues the rejection of the Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So how does Jesus lead his people in this new exodus, out of the exile of sin and into eternal life with God. Jesus takes the wrath of God upon himself that through his atoning sacrifice at the cross, we might experience healing, forgiveness, and forever peace with God. As I mentioned earlier, Satan thought... Satan thought the crucifixion of Jesus was his great victory. The Son of God who had eluded Herod's clutches had finally been put to death. Now, it happened 30 years after Herod's attempt, but Satan had finally gotten his man. Or so he thought. How wrong and gloriously wrong Satan was. Jesus rose from the dead, destroying Satan's rule of tyranny rooted in the bondage of sin, leading his people out into the new creation brought about by his resurrection. In the eternal plan of God, Satan fulfilling his great desire, the killing of God's son, actually brought about his great desire and final defeat, and the deliverance that met humanity's great need. God protected the life of his son until the exact moment where his death would provide eternal protection for his people. Friends, God has always been about the business of protecting his son and his people from tyrants like Pharaoh and Herod and ultimately Satan. And while Satan's cruelty does still rage in this world as he goes down in defeat, he is a defeated foe. He was defeated at the cross, at the resurrection, 
And God is still about protecting his church today from the fury of the enemy. God protects his people. And, and even if we, like those families in Bethlehem, are impacted by Satan's cruelty in this life, the new exodus brought about by God's Son will lead all of us, all of his children, safely home. And, and as we conclude, don't miss this, okay? Don't miss this. The glorious exodus, this glorious exodus brought about by Jesus into the new creation begins now for those who place their faith in God's Son, the Messiah. Forgiveness and righteousness now. Membership in God's family now. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit now being gradually transformed into the image of Christ now, and the confidence that God is sovereignly working with a purpose now, even amidst the raging of his enemies. We right now have the hope of a recreated Eden, a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation that is coming. And when that future day comes, when Christ returns, the exodus that we have begun to enjoy now will be complete. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Behold, God is making all things new. This is the final exodus that Jesus brings. Everything will be made right as it was in the beginning. The cruelty of Satan and the curse of sin eradicated forever, and all who place their faith in Jesus, God's Son, the Messiah, will be with God and his people for all eternity in the true land of promise, the place where the presence of God dwells with his children forever. Let's pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed by your goodness to us. Oh, we praise you, we worship you, we thank you, we magnify your, your name for the provision of this son, this perfect son, who in his exit and in his exile and ultimately in his exodus, brings about the new creation of which we can all be a part if our faith is in your Son. In whose name we pray, amen.